Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Corey Byram. And so this police officer did what I think any one of us would do, confronted with four teenage boys taking their clothes off in the car in a high school parking lot. And he said, okay, and walked off. That and more. But before that, folks, we are looking for Halloween sorts of stories and winter holidays sorts of stories for our Halloween episode and our winter holidays episode. So those Halloween sorts of stories are, you know, ghost stories or, you know, times that you were afraid for your life, you know, horror movie sorts of stories or stories that take place on Halloween. And winter holidays, those are fun sorts of stories around Christmas, Hanukkah, Thanksgiving, uh, you know, um, what is it, New Year's Eve. (laughs) You know, winter holidays. Those are usually kind of lighter sorts of stories, more fun, and and not always, but usually. So pitch us. Go on over to risk-show.com slash submissions, and if you know anyone who might have a good Halloween story or a winter holiday story, have them pitch us. Risk-show.com slash submissions. Also, a two-day live online group storytelling for business workshop is happening on August 21st and August 22nd. That is being taught by Cindy Freeman. You cannot possibly do better than that. Cindy Freeman is spectacular, very beloved for teaching storytelling for business. So you're with the best of the best there, and you can find all of that at thestorystudio.org. We also do customized corporate workshops for staffs of businesses. Check it all out at thestorystudio.org. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Kenny Burrell behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode Buds. These are two stories by men about best friends that they had way back when in their childhoods. And... How complicated that can be sometimes to have a good friend in your childhood. (laughs) These are very uh, tumultuous and emotional and action-packed stories today. I think it's out of the 560 or so episodes that we've made, I think it's only the second where it was all men. In this case, it was just that these two stories were so kind of interestingly different and yet interestingly hitting on some similar territory that the backgrounds, the backgrounds of these two guys and 
the ways that their stories echo and differ from one another, I think is very interesting. You know, a couple episodes ago, I mentioned that I was hoping that Risk fans out there who live in the cities of Toronto and Amsterdam would email me because I'm thinking of visiting those cities and wanted to connect with fans there. But then it occurred to me, why not do that for New York City? Why don't we do a social sort of thing? I don't know, maybe a bar that has an outdoor area or something like that so that vaccinations are required, but there's still like you know, outdoor space. If you live in New York City and you think you might want to gather socially with other Risk fans, not to see a Risk show, but to hang out with me and maybe some other members of the staff and storytellers and meet fellow Risk fans and just hang out, um, <laughs> uh, email me at kevin at risk-show.com. And to my friends who wrote to me from Toronto and Amsterdam, thank you so much. I'm not sure when I'll ever be able to afford <laughs> to actually make those trips or when borders might close or reopen again or whatever. So for the time being, it seems like it might be a good idea to get to know some of our New York fans better. So email me at kevin at show.com and I'll let you know we'll organize some sort of social thing soonish. And we have another show coming up on August 18th at Caveat on the Lower East Side. It'll be at 7 p.m. Eastern. You have to show proof of vaccination. And it will be simultaneously live streamed on YouTube. So be sure to get your tickets for either the live stream or the in-person show at risk-show.com tour. Again, that's August 18th at 7 p.m. Let's get to the stories. The first was recorded in 2015 in Denver. We thought we had lost the audio for this one. We've been doing a lot of recovering, reconstituting, remastering of old archive material. Anyway, I was thrilled to find that this story is still so great and sounds great too. This is Corey Byram who you can find on Twitter at C.D. Byram with a story we call The Iceberg. So I want to tell you guys about my friend David for a little while, if you don't mind. David and I had been sitting in his bedroom for a couple of hours with the blinds closed when his parents got home and told us about the several inches of snow that had fallen outside. We were at that age where sitting around in one of our bedrooms, listening to punk rock and watching horror movies was about as exciting as a Friday night could get. David fashioned himself after the classic British punk rockers. His hair was always in spikes or in a mohawk and it was rarely its natural color. He wore a denim jacket with safety pins all over it and a huge portrait of Johnny Rotten on the back that he had drawn. He was an excellent artist, and while we sat around doing nothing, he would draw album covers for made-up bands that he imagined himself to be a part of while I dicked around on the guitar and that sort of thing. 
But snow in suburban Atlanta was a pretty rare treat. So as soon as we found out that it had in fact snowed, we got on a couple extra layers of clothes and then headed out just to kind of explore. And there wasn't really anything to do in the snow, but just being out in it because it was so rare felt kind of magical. And it was nighttime and streetlights cast kind of an orange glow all over this pristine blankets of white snow that were over everything. We met up with another kid who lived near him that uh, was just as bored with life as we were, and we just kind of goofed off. We were throwing snowballs, doing whatever. Oh, we rescued a bird? I mean, that's something you do in the snow, right? The other guy, this, who I didn't really know that well, he saw the bird, and it was kind of hobbling around, and he started to go for it. And I don't know, for some reason, I thought he was going to hurt it, and so I'm like nudging David, like, holy shit, we're about to fight because this guy's about to hurt a bird. But... <laughs> I don't even know why I thought that. He was a nice enough guy, but he, he didn't. He grabbed the bird and he like stuck it in the pocket of his hoodie and then we walked back to his house and he set it up in the garage with a box and a heater and I think he took care of it for like a couple weeks and then it flew off, I don't know. That has nothing to do with the rest of the story. I just like to tell people we saved a bird. So after we dropped off the bird, David and I headed back out into the cold alone. Pretty soon found ourselves at the apartment complex pool Given our haircuts and our ages, you would have thought that David and I would have been out to like really cause some trouble. But we were sort of shrouded in a cocoon of innocence that it's hard to even imagine existed. We didn't drink or do any drugs. We didn't even smoke cigarettes. We would occasionally talk about like, hey, we should buy some pot from this guy or so-and-so is getting some acid, we should get some. But nothing would ever really materialize. So we wore X's on our hands to have a sort of a punk rock, straight edge identity, but the truth is we were just straight edge by way of extreme laziness. <laughs> so we were standing there looking through the fence at this frigid water and the snow's falling on it, and it's really pretty or whatever. And then we climb the fence, and then we're making snowballs and dipping them down in the cold water until they're just like hunks of ice and then pelting each other with them. And normally that's the kind of thing I would have been really whiny about because I was and remain an incredible pussy. But with all those extra clothes on, you couldn't even really feel it. So as long as we didn't hit each other in the face, it was no big deal. And I don't know whose idea it was to start building the iceberg, but we were suddenly very serious about it. It was a two-man operation. So one of us would be crouched down at the side of the pool holding this big hunk of icy snow that we had placed there. And the other one would be gathering up snow to pack on it and around it to make it bigger and taller. Building this iceberg was really sort of emblematic of the years that David and I spent together because these were sort of our formative teenage years and we had no car, we had no job. I was 15 at the time of the iceberg and David was 17. So we just kind of wasted time in the way that only dumb teenagers can. Usually late at night, usually without our parents knowing what we were up to. Like once we uh, snuck out of his house late at night and we were gonna go roll toilet paper roll this kid down the street's house, but we could only get two rolls of toilet paper from David's house or else his parents would notice the toilet paper was gone and then they would see the house that had been toilet papered and know that we snuck out. So we just like rolled the shit out of one bush. That was pointless. <laughs> Poor kid cleaning up the bush the next day, I don't know. Another time we snuck out of his house and walked a couple streets over to meet up with some girls at one of their houses, only David took us to the wrong house. So we knocked on the window and then hid behind a car for a half an hour while some guy in his underwear with a shotgun tried to find the little shits that scared his wife in the middle of the night. <laughs> Not one of our smarter moments. But you know, David always had something going on with some girl. We were always walking to see some girl that he had a thing going on with. And even though he was this grubby punk rocker, 
He was just about the most charming son of a bitch you'd ever meet. And he could say and do things and get away with stuff that most people couldn't and that I certainly couldn't. Once he came into our ninth grade math class and announced just to the whole class, yeah, I decided yesterday I'm just not going to take showers anymore. I just don't even give a shit if I'm dirty. And all the girls giggled and made fuck me eyes at him. And I'm sitting there all jealous like, well, I, don't, I couldn't do that. That doesn't make any sense. Oh, he convinced that same class that I had monkey feet. He's like, yeah, Corey, take off your shoes. Show everybody your monkey feet. Whenever nobody's around, he picks stuff up with him. He can use a knife and a fork. It's crazy. And I, look, if anybody here has monkey feet, I'm not, I don't, I don't, it's not a big deal. I mean, it would be kind of cool, to be honest. But when you're like 14, you don't want people thinking you got monkey feet when you don't have monkey feet. And I don't have monkey feet, for the record. But they believed him because that's just how it went with us. We had a friend who lived with his grandparents, and his grandmother was this, like, surly, irritable woman who cursed like a sailor and wouldn't take shit from anybody. And we were all kind of terrified of her. But David like plopped down on sitting next to her and he said, can you hear my voice? And when she barked back, yes, he kind of lovingly laid his head on her shoulder and said, do you like it? And she busted out laughing and it broke the ice with her. And we actually all grew to really love her and realized she wasn't nearly as frightening as she seemed once we kind of got beneath the surface. But that was the kind of sense of humor that David had. He didn't mind putting himself in harm's way for a laugh or pushing people's buttons. He loved making jokes at my expense, much like the monkey feet. <laughs> Once in one of the bathrooms in our high school, he drew on the wall a huge, gigantic penis, 13 inches long and like four inches wide. And again, he was a great artist. This wasn't like just some scrawled outline. There were like veins and hairs. I mean, it was, it was a masterpiece, frankly. And then above it, he wrote, Corey Byram has a huge dick. And of course, he didn't tell me that he had done this. So I just go in the bathroom one day and I'm like, God damn it. He could have at least like snuck into the girl's bathroom if he's going to start spreading this rumor about me, right? So he was a very charming guy. A lot of our time wasting involved trying to play music together. I played the guitar and we'd wrangle up a couple of the guys and try to start a band. Sometimes he would play bass, but he had a really unparalleled lack of rhythm. Other times he would try to sing and his timing was no better there. So these sessions would usually end with us not speaking for a few days because I would get so irritated with his lack of focus and he would be so annoyed by my constant bitching about his lack of focus. So for the years that went by and all the times we tried to start bands together, we managed to write one song and it was called, My Sister Got Plowed by Hitler. It was pretty sophisticated. <laughs> so anyway, at least with the iceberg, we had a physical representation of our time wasting. Once we were done building it, we could step back and look at this huge thing we had made in the pool and be proud of our accomplishment. So you can imagine my frustration when I went to go to the bathroom and came back to see the thing floating off in the pool unfinished. And I told him like five times, just sit here and hold it. Don't do anything. Don't try to add any snow. Just sit here and hold it. I'm just going around the corner. I'll be right back. And I have no doubt that my insistence on him sitting there and holding it is exactly why he didn't sit there and hold it, because that's just the kind of guy he was. But no, the iceberg had floated off, and it was a done deal. Over the next year or so, we started to drift apart as we both got into bands that... Um, took up a lot of our time. Bands not with each other, because that was not gonna work. And even though our bands shared the bill a lot of times, and we even shared a band member for a long time, we just didn't see each other as much. 
he dropped out of high school. And unfortunately, even after our earlier attempts at being straight edge, he started getting into drugs. And as he got more and more into drugs, his resentment towards me started to build, partly because I was still very vocally against all of that kind of stuff. His band started getting pretty popular, and I think he saw that as kind of a middle finger to me as well, going back to our earlier days of trying to start a band and all of my constant criticism of him. This all sort of came to a head when he began publicly mocking me and talking shit about me pretty much every chance he got. He would make fun of me from stage. He wrote song lyrics that made fun of me. He was generally just an asshole. There was no event that caused it. It was just something that started kind of building and happened over time. And if anyone asked him, like, you know, what's your problem with Corey? He would just be like, man, fuck that guy. He thinks he's so much better than everybody else because he doesn't drink or do drugs. And now he's all high and mighty. And, I mean, the truth is I can't necessarily argue with his reasoning. I mean, looking back on it now, I think I was probably as much of an asshole as he was. I just wasn't quite as public about it. This went on for, I don't know, a few years, maybe 18 months. It slowly built. And the thing is, we still had tons of friends in common, so it was really awkward because we tried our best to avoid each other, but we would often be sort of thrust into the same space. He was still the fun-loving, crazy, hilarious guy that I had always known. He just wasn't that way around me. And so, for example, we had a friend in town visiting who was supposed to be staying over at David's house, and that friend came bursting into the Little Caesars where I worked, and he was like, hey, uh, I need somewhere to stay tonight. David got arrested. And so I had these conflicting emotions. My first thought was like, oh, Jesus, what has he done now? Like, was it drugs or theft or violence or whatever. And then my second thought was, good, that dick, because I kind of figured whatever he had done, he had brought it on himself anyway, so he was getting what he deserved. But no, it wasn't any of those more serious things. He'd gotten arrested for streaking the Fayette County High School football game. (laughs) So let me paint a little scene for you. It's kind of misting route. It's not really raining, just kind of drizzly. There's four teenage boys in a car taking their clothes off in the parking lot next to the high school football game. This is what the police officer found, and he knocked on the window, and David rolled it down to being the most cool-headed and charming of the bunch. The officer said, what are you guys doing in here? He said, oh, you know, our clothes just got wet from the rain a little bit, so we just got in here to dry off and get on some dry clothes. And so this police officer did what I think any one of us would do, confronted with four teenage boys taking their clothes off in the car in a high school parking lot, and he said, Okay, and walked off, because he's like, they do not pay me enough to deal with this shit, so whatever these kids are doing, they can fucking do it. I don't, you know. So sure enough, just before halftime, David and these three other guys hop the fence in one end zone, and they go tearing off down through the football field, butt naked, the crowd's going crazy. The cops come in from the other side and are coming up behind them, and as they get to the other end zone, the fence on the other side, our school's head janitor, this big redneck guy, is leaning up against the fence, and he casually tosses out some advice that David could have probably followed from then on. You better move your ass. The cops are right behind you. <laughs> and so sure enough, the cops caught him and the others, and they were arrested for streaking the high school football game. But these moments of you know, hilarious shenanigans aside, his drug use was starting to lead him to some pretty dark places. This culminated in a few G.G. Allen-style performances with his band involving nudity and beer bottles and oral sex and whatever else. And it was starting to get him a reputation of being kind of fucked up. Meanwhile, he thought I was a square. I thought he was becoming a junkie. And neither of us was wrong. On the night of my 18th birthday, 
I went out to go to a party at a friend's house and there was a Papa John's box sitting on my car. And David was a delivery driver for Papa John's. So I was a little scared to open it because I thought he might have like shat in it or something, which would be kind of funny, I guess, even though he's being a dick. But he didn't, he didn't shit in it, thankfully. So when I opened it up, there was a, uh, one of his band's t-shirts inside and a message scrawled on the box that said, I'm sorry, Big Harry Fatty. And Big Harry Fatty was a term of endearment, if you can believe it. So it was the best gift I got that year. And I went to the party and David was there and we hugged and exchanged I love yous and he apologized. And I said, David, what happened? What caused all this? And he said he didn't even know. And the thing is, it didn't really even matter because I had my friend back. But over the next couple of months when we hung out more and we tried to go back to the way things used to be, it was never quite the same. Too much time had passed. Our inside jokes weren't funny anymore. Our interests had shifted. He was still heavily into drugs. I was still heavily not. But we were at least on friendly terms and all that tension and, and awkwardness between the two of us and our group of friends had kind of released because we were getting along and it was good. It wasn't the same as it was before, but it was good. That following year, our lives took us sort of in different directions as I went off to college and he moved up to Athens, Georgia to focus on becoming a tattoo artist. We didn't see each other quite as much, but we were on good terms for the next two years. Just before I turned 21, I was up in Athens with a band. We were recording a record. And the first night we were there, we got a phone call that David had overdosed on heroin and was in the hospital. We went to visit him and the gulf between us seemed bigger than ever. He uh, was cracking jokes. He didn't remember anything that had happened. We'd hoped it would be like a wake-up call to him, but he remembered getting off of work and then waking up in the hospital. And the part that he had missed, at least part of that, was his roommate coming home to an empty house but a locked bathroom. And he pounded on the door and there was no response. And he walked around and looked in through the outside window and found David lying on the floor unconscious. So he called 911 and kicked the door in. But all of that was gone for David, and the events leading up to it were gone. He knew nothing of any of this. When he first woke up, he wanted to know who had kicked his ass. He thought he must have been like assaulted after he got off work. So we hoped that it would be a wake-up call to him, but nothing really changed after that, because to him it was just like, I don't know, a side trip that didn't really affect him. Over the next couple of years, he bounced around a lot between Athens, Georgia, and Savannah, and Atlanta, and New York, and even Fayetteville, Georgia, where we grew up and where his parents still lived. And I would run into him every now and then. We'd see each other at parties and that sort of thing. And he would always say he was clean, but you could tell he wasn't. Once my wife and I had gotten a new puppy, and we took it to this party with us, and David was there, and he played with the puppy all night. And then I saw him again a couple weeks later, and he said, hey, I heard you got a new dog, man. I'd love to see it. Everything was just becoming a blur to him. And as the years went on, we had less and less contact. People would ask about him, or I would ask people about him, and the stories would always start with, well, I'd heard he was clean, but... And they never really ended anywhere good after that. In 2006, my first son was born, and that night I was feeling pretty emotional and nostalgic, and I found David on MySpace. And we had not had any contact in years at this point. I sent him a message telling him my news, and he wrote back two sentences. That's wild. What'd y'all name it? And he never wrote again after that. The day after Christmas of 2009, my wife and I were sitting around watching TV and she was chatting with a friend whose husband was a fireman in our town. The friend told her, 
They had just heard over the police scanner that there had been an attempted robbery at the Walgreens with shots fired and that the suspect had a blue mohawk and was covered in tattoos. And our hearts sank. David had had a friend drop him off at the Walgreens and he went inside and pulled out a gun and told everyone to get out. He headed straight for the pharmacy, was rummaging through the drugs, and he was trying to get the narcotics safe open when the cops got there. He tried to close the gate, but he couldn't get it to close, so he pointed his gun at the cops and one of them shot him twice. They hit him in the abdomen and luckily he did not die. But as they were dragging him out and cuffing him and putting him in the ambulance, he was reportedly yelling, you were supposed to kill me. So David is now on year six of a 20 year prison sentence. And we've written back and forth a few times, tried to patch things up. We've both done our fair share of apologizing. And so as you can tell from the telling of this story that for most of David's story, I was just more of a bystander. I was a witness to his humor and his charm and his talent, but also his pain and his overwhelming need for acceptance and his ultimately devastating addiction. And in all those years when we weren't in his close contact, I could have tried to help him get clean. I could have fought with him or begged him or staged interventions. And maybe other people did in my absence. But ultimately, I didn't do any of that. I didn't really try to help him. And so in the end, he just floated out of my life, not unlike an iceberg in an apartment complex pool in the winter of 1993. Thank you for listening. Should I go? If you say that you are mine, I'll be here till the end of time. So you got to let me know. Should I stay or should I go? It's always taste, taste, taste. You're happy when I'm on my knees. One day is fine and next is black So if you want me off your back Well come on and let me know Should I stay or should I go? This is Risk. This is The Clash behind me now. And we just heard from Corey Byram. Now listen, there's a documentary that was made about Corey's friend David's band. It's on YouTube. The film is called Stopper, The Rise and Fall of the Bastard Squad. So (laughs) if you want to check that out, it's on YouTube. Folks, if you love what we do here on Risk and over at the Story Studio, the support of our fans is so, so important to us, and it could not be more appreciated. You know, if you become a member, 
at patreon.com slash risk, you will have access to so much bonus content, over 140 bonus stories, our many anecdote compilations, 50 check-ins. I just uploaded a new Kevin check-in last week, interviews with staff and storytellers, free online story studio video classes. Oh my gosh, so much great stuff. And if you go over to Patreon right now, there's a new anecdote compilation. You know, those anecdotes that you guys send in to us. This compilation was edited by the newest member of the Risk team, Taj Easton, who also edited Corey Byram's story up at the top of the show. And this compilation features Sarah Stevens, Sarah Ney, and Tanya Slosberg. I was like deathly afraid of anyone finding out that I had my period. It would just horrify me to think that someone would see me with this tampon and think that I was so disgusting. So check out all of that and more at patreon.com slash risk. And if you'd like to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Let's get to our final story today. This is quite, quite a trip, this story. This comes to us from Chris Lundy, who is the host of the First Person Arts Story Slam. Oh my gosh, we love First Person Arts in Philadelphia, and we're so thrilled that they introduced us to Chris Lundy. You can find Chris on Twitter at Lundy World. This is also extraordinary in that all of the music in this story was composed by our audio editor, John LaSala. So let us go off on this journey now. Here is Chris Lundy with a story we call 413. Growing up, my big sister, she loved dating gangsters, right? Like thugs, roughnecks, like the, the rougher the better, right? That was her style. And um, the one guy she was most head over heels for was a guy named Duran. My sister and him were inseparable. You would not see one without seeing the other. And everybody knew that Duran was dating my sister and my sister was dating Duran. They were like this notorious couple. And Duran was as gangster as it got. I didn't know what he did or how he did it, but everybody was afraid of Duran and Duran wasn't scared of nobody. Now, he wasn't the biggest guy in the world. I, I consider him like lanky. And when he was smiling, it I mean, he had like the kindest face in the world. But when he was angry, that same area would, would turn down and become this extremely intimidating scowl, right? So it was like two extreme opposites, same face, two completely different ends of the spectrum. 
kind of walked to the beat of his own drum. He had his own set of rules, his own code. And, and even though he was on the outskirts of the rules and kind of had that bad boy thing going on, because he lived by this code, he seemed like a, a stand-up guy, an honorable guy, a trustworthy kind of dude. And he had a lot of bass, a lot of bass in his voice, and he knew how to use it. I remember one time I was with Deron and he saw these four guys out in front of an apartment building and for no reason at all, he yells to them, yo, what the fuck are y'all looking at? Not one of them said anything. I was floored by this. If I saw these four guys, I would have been scared or just wanted to mind my business. And Duran, unprovoked, initiated a beef with these four guys, confidently. And they didn't say a thing to him. And that was just more evidence that Duran was a motherfucking gangster. Everybody was scared of him. He, he had the neighborhood on lock. So I was growing up in a tough neighborhood, but I wasn't a tough kid, right? I was in middle school. I loved comic books. You know, I collected pennies. I was that kid. I was a penny collector. And I would like lay them out in rows in my bedroom all by myself in the order from oldest to newest. And like my favorite ones were the old ones, the ones that were old as shit that on the back, they didn't even have the Lincoln Memorial yet. It just said one cent on the back. Like those were my all-stars. I love those. My neighborhood was right on the border of Southeast DC. And Southeast DC was notorious for being the roughest part of a rough city. <laughs> so by being on the Maryland border there, it was like you can make a left and go toward a creek where there were trees and nice flowers. Or you can make a right where if you weren't wearing a bulletproof vest, you might as well just go ahead and plan your funeral. There was like this dichotomy going on and it shared you know, a zip code, but the worlds were so different. And I had friends on both sides of that, of that line. So I was raised by a single mom, a Haitian immigrant, and she was tough. She ran a, a tough ship in the house, but I don't think she knew much about the neighborhood or what was going on outside of our doors. There were fights all the time for no reason, for stupid reasons. There were bullies all over the place and people would tease you about anything. Like if you had uh, old shoes, you were getting teased. We called it joning, right? So if someone were talking about your hair, they would be joning on you. And people joned all the time. Fights were unprovoked. You could get jumped for no reason or worse. Guys were getting shot for gritting on each other, right? And gritting, what that is, is it's when you kind of look a person up and down in a sizing them up kind of way. Um, and that was just considered a sign of disrespect. And this sign of disrespect oftentimes led to somebody actually getting shot, actually getting killed. And the worst part about it was this was normal to us. Like this was like a cultural 
norm. Everybody knew somebody who got killed. Everybody had a friend who died. And we just accepted it as a way of life. It was a scary little world that we lived in. But just naturally, I gravitated toward the good kid way of things, like following rules. I remember nothing made me happier than bringing home my report card to my mother and showing her how well I had done. Like that would make my day. Getting her approval meant everything to me. So that's the path I walked, that's where I was, but I was always aware of just how bad shit was around the neighborhood. But Duran protected me from all of this. You know, just based off his reputation alone, if you fucked with me, then you might have to fuck with Duran. And nobody wanted to fuck with Duran. And he, he wasn't stingy with his street knowledge either. Like he would school me up. He would give me lessons and tell me things like, for example, if some bullies are messing with you, you pick out the biggest one and you hit them with whatever you could find, a, a brick, a stick, whatever you could find, you hit them with that. And you'll probably lose, right? You'll lose that fight, but he'll never mess with you again. And everyone who's smaller than him, they're definitely not gonna fuck with you because now you're seen as the crazy kid that'll hit somebody with a brick, right? And it was true. And he taught me these types of things while he would cut my hair. And that was kind of like his, his hidden talent. He was the best barber I've ever seen. Like sharp lines, nice fades. It was an art form for him. He would really take his time. We would set up in the bathroom. You know, he'd sit me on the toilet. The toilet was the barber seat. He would line up his clippers and he would just, you know, shape me up. And while he was doing that, we'd be talking. He was like a comedian. Like he'd, he'd ask me about girls and tell me jokes. We'd talk about school. I mean, Duran taught me everything from how to shoot a gun to, to how to, you know, kiss a girl. If my mother knew what he was teaching me while he was giving me those haircuts, she would have kicked them out right then and there and told me and my sister to stay far away from Duran. But he knew where we were. He knew the neighborhood that I was in and the type of shit that I would be subject to. And so he was teaching me and preparing me for any situation that I might come across because of where we lived. He knew that I needed it. He knew I needed the help. Again, single mom, so there wasn't a dad around, older sister, so I didn't have an older brother. He kind of stepped in as that male figure to teach me how to navigate the hood. It just boosted my confidence and it gave me this sense of security when Duran was around. Bottom line, I worship the ground he walked on. So when he asked me to take a walk with him one night, I jumped at the chance. I was in. As we're walking one night, a car pulls up and it's Saquon. Saquon is another guy from the neighborhood, older than me, but maybe a couple of years younger than Duran. Saquon was a, was a little badass. Not like Duran, though. Duran was a badass that you took seriously. Saquon was more of a mischievous little guy you know you know he didn't really go to school or maybe he dropped out too i'm not quite sure but no one really 
took Saquon too seriously. No one feared Saquon. But you knew that if you dared Saquon to do something, Saquon would probably do it. (laughs) That was his reputation. And uh, he comes up and he goes, hey, yo, this is a UUV. Now, I didn't know what the hell a UUV was, but for the record, a UUV means unauthorized usage of a vehicle, a.k.a. a stolen car. Right. I assumed it was like the model of a car, like the Nissan UUV or something. I, I had no clue. I was I was just a little naive little kid. And so Duran motioned for us to get in. And so we got in. And I'm thinking, you know, all right, I'm I'm hanging with the boys. Like, what are we what are we about to get into? And so we headed to a construction site where they were building these townhomes. And Saquon is driving like a complete wild man. He's doing donuts. He's spinning out, you know, jumping little little ramps and and shit like that. And then Duran takes the wheel. And he's even crazier than Saquon. He's doing all kinds of stuff, driving fast. And then out of nowhere, Duran goes, hey, yo, uh, let Youngin drive. That was me, right? I was was Youngin. So I get in the driver's seat. And this is my first time ever drive. I'd never sat behind a wheel before. And I'm driving the car and we spot this porta potty and they say, yo, run that shit over. Literally, they were saying, let's play bowling. Let's go bowling using the car as a bowling ball and the porta potty as the bowling pin. Now I'm thinking to myself, this is insane. First of all, I've never even driven a car to begin with. And my first time out, I'm gonna go bowling with porta potties? I, I, I'm not understanding what's going on. First of all, Saquon must have excellent insurance on this UUV of his. And I was kind of shocked at myself that, yes, I was excited, but I wasn't that nervous. I think that I started to assimilate to being one of the bad boys and if Duran was saying that hitting this porta potty was okay and Saquon was giving me the thumbs up then then this was the way to go and so I line the car up and I hit the gas and I'm going toward this porta potty and I'm thinking to myself are you sure are you sure are you serious are you really about to do this boom crunch crash into the porta potty it goes flying there's I don't piss everywhere shit everywhere I go flying through this porta potty and it was exhilarating it felt like I I was waiting for some type of award after you know the world's greatest porta potty killer is how I felt after hitting that it felt like I had graduated from little innocent naive kid to rookie bad boy that's what it felt like. I mean, I'm looking at the porta potty destroyed. I'm looking around. We're in this construction site, driving this car. It just felt like we could do anything we wanted to do at that time. It, it was exhilarating. Like this kid, I never really did anything wrong. And for the first time, I felt like I was in a bad boys club, right? I was behind the velvet rope and I finally got to see what goes on behind there. And I loved it. I love every second of it. So I'm still on this high. Saquon takes the wheel. I'm in the back seat, and we're going back to our neighborhood for Saquon to drop us off. And on our way out, we see five cop cars 
on their way in. And I see Duran stiffen up and Saquon get really, really quiet. And as the cops pass us, one at a time, I turn and I see they all start to make U-turns in a single file, single file. I take another peek at Saquon and Duran and they're even more stiff, even more quiet. And I see something that I had never seen in my life and I never thought I would see. I saw fear on Duran's face. I turn back around and I see the cops, the lights flash on, the sirens blaring now. And they hit the gas, speed up, and now they're pretty much right up on our bumper. I'm scared shitless. I look in the the rear view and I see Saquon's face and he looks confused. He looks unsure. He doesn't know what to do. So I yell to him, stop the car. It's the cops. It It was common sense to me. When you see police, if they tell you to stop, you stop. End of story. But Duran had other ideas. Duran said, no, go. I got warrants. Go. I'm thinking to myself, like, what do you mean go? Cops say stop. You stop. Duran said, go. Saquon obliged by mashing down on the gas. I'm thinking, what the hell is going on? In my little naive mind, I'm thinking we were just playing. We were all driving, taking turns, driving Saquon's car, messing around. And now we're being pursued by police and we're actually talking about running away. It it blew my mind and I couldn't wrap my little head around it. And what are your warrants for? Like, what could Duran have possibly done? I'm panicked, and Saquon obliged Duran's request by putting the pedal to the motherfucking metal and gunning it. That fast, we were in an all-out high-speed police chase. And I'm seeing that we're headed full speed toward an intersection. And there's no lights. There was a stop sign, but there's no light. So the cars are coming east to west, west to east. They're flying, but we're going north to south. And we're not slowing down. If anything, we were picking up more speed. I'm bracing. I'm thinking, damn, this is the way I'm going to die? In the back seat of a UUV? We go straight through the intersection. I don't know what the odds are, but we went through untouched, unscathed, right through. Now the cops, of course, they are gonna be more careful through an intersection. So they stop to make sure they weren't causing any accidents. And at those speeds, an accident would have been fatal, no doubt. So them being more careful and stopping created separation. It gave us a little bit of breathing room. So by the time we got to our neighborhood, there was a a moment of peace. Saquon brought the car to a roll. It was just slow enough for him to jump out. And so Saquon jumped out. And then Duran jumped out. And I go to jump out, but my door wouldn't budge. Fucking child safety locks. 
Because the car was still in motion, the rear doors couldn't be opened from the inside. So I was trapped. I was petrified. I looked back and I saw that the cops had made their way through the intersection. My stomach dropped. I remember my face feeling tingly just from fear, from shock, from panic. I was yanking on the door. I even slid over to the other side and tried to yank that door open too. Neither side would open. The car still moving and still rolling. I'm wondering, am I about to crash into something? So I got danger in the front of me. I turn around, I see the cops. I got danger in the back of me and I'm fucking trapped. I'm thinking, how am I gonna tell my mother? What's gonna happen to me? Am I going to jail for the rest of my life? Like my body couldn't handle the amount of shock that it was receiving. <laughs> it was overload. I couldn't, I couldn't physically process what my mind was sending to my body. It was overload. I, I don't know what's going on and out of nowhere, my door flings open. I look and it's Duran. I, I couldn't believe my eyes. I know how fast Duran is and I know that he had enough time to be gone. I mean, vanish into the night. But he stopped and he came back to let me out. I didn't even understand how he knew that I was still stuck in the car. When they had both jumped out and sprinted away, he must have checked back or looked back for me. I, I don't know and I'm having all of these thoughts. How is he here? He had a clean getaway. He could have been gone, but he came back, circled back and opened up my door. I was frozen with shock. And then he snapped me out of it by saying, run! He takes off, I jump out the car, I'm running behind him, I'm trying to follow his path, but he was too fast. This guy was a streak, he was gone. And I'm trying to follow where he's running to in the direction that he's running, can't keep up. And I actually see at this point, there were cops all over the place, all over our neighborhood. And I heard one yell, freeze, with their guns drawn. But Duran threw both of his arms up, but he kept running full speed. So he's got both his arms up in the air, sprinting full speed, still getting away. They couldn't catch him. I'm telling you, this guy was a track star. And so in all of this commotion, I noticed that nobody was after me. No one was chasing me. And so I took this opportunity. I had the bright idea to take my jacket off throw it into the bushes and just start walking casually, just blending into the neighborhood like I was a bystander who just happened to be outside. So I'm walking calm, minding my own business, and then I hear that sound, the clanging, the clink clang of police baton and keys and handcuffs and pepper spray. You know, that sound that cops make when they're sprinting. I hear it, I'm thinking, all right, just stay calm. Just chill out. It's getting louder. It's getting louder. The clanging, the clinking, the clanging. I'm like, all right, commit to the roll, Chris. Like, keep your cool. Keep your cool. Boom. Two cops brought me down and they start pounding me. I mean, beating the shit out of me. 
One was kneeing me in the back. The other was grabbing my hands to put behind my arms. And I guess I wasn't moving fast enough because they're punching me in the spine. I was yelling out that I'm a kid. I'm just a kid in hopes that they would lighten up a little bit. I knew that if they were determined to rough me up, that that's what was going to happen. But at least scale it back a little bit to the middle schoolers version of whatever you're going to do here. Some beat up and they throw these cuffs on me extremely tight. I'm talking like fingertips losing circulation and they throw me in the back seat. It was confusing to me because I, you know, I was raised to be a good boy and to do the right things. And if the police tell you to do something, you do it, you comply. But the way that I was being roughed up, man, it, it was really giving me some doubts on that whole philosophy, that whole concept there. So I'm sitting in the back seat and the cops are sort of heckling me. I remember the canine unit guy comes and he lets his German shepherd in the back seat with me barking ferociously all in my face. I thought I was going to be, you know, mauled to death in the, in the back seat there. So I'm petrified. I'm wondering what happened with Duran, what happened with Saquon. I'm seeing more and more cops, more and more patrol cars. It, it looked like this just huge scene had completely gotten out of hand because all you saw was red and blue lights everywhere. So I'm sitting there handcuffed, waiting, thinking, and it started to dawn on me that that might not have been Saquon's car. <laughs> I was I was a complete I was a complete naive little kid. So the cops they they take me down to the precinct, fingerprint, mugshot, jail cell, the whole thing, and they're pressuring me to give up the names of the guys who got away. And I tell him, I say, listen, one, one was Saquon, I think. And the other one, I'd never seen him before. I never saw that other guy before in my life. A couple hours later, my mother gets me out and we walk to my mother's car and Duran is ducked down in the seat, out of sight, ducked down. And as soon as he and I lock eyes, he kind of makes this face, this this motion and this look to me to just keep quiet, don't say anything. And it dawned on me that he must have ran straight to my house and told my mother some story that got me off the hook. There was no punishment, no yelling, no reprimand. Duran had somehow cleared it all up with my mom. The police actually pinned the stolen car on me, but because I was so young and I didn't have any priors, a fine and an apology to the vehicle's real owner was enough to kind of clear everything up. And my record was later expunged. And then some time went by and I remember Duran not being around as much. His visits were kind of few and far between and then we got some some devastating news. Duran had been killed. We didn't know exactly what happened, but we knew that he got shot and we knew that it happened in Washington, D.C. At that time, that's all we knew. 
word spread around the neighborhood. You know, everybody knew of Duran. And so him being killed just spread like wildfire. It was the talk of the town. Duran was dead. Duran was killed. I remember there was this emptiness. It felt like like my big brother had gotten killed. Like my protector was gone. There was just empty, dark, sad times around then. That year, D.C. was the murder capital and Duran was the 413th person killed in the city. I'll never forget that number, number 413. I later came to learn that the arrest warrant that Duran had was for murder. Two separate ones, actually. He was in the life. Duran was in the life all the way. But what it did make me realize is with everything on the line, Duran came back for me that night. He risked everything, right? A warrant for his arrest for murder. Two murders. And he risked all of that to get me out of the back seat of that car. I don't know, that just blows my mind. Now, I took Duran's death really hard. After that loss, there was a shift in me. I started skipping school a lot. When I did go to school, my grades were bad. I wasn't into anything like sports, no activities, anything like that. I just I wasn't in anything. My haircuts were trash uh, because, you know, I didn't have to run around to cut it. It just was uh, it was a different time. But over time, I started to find my way out of it, started to bounce back and make changes for the better. My grades, sports. I was captain of the football team. I joined ROTC, you know, student government. I was homecoming king, a pretty popular kid. And a lot of it was inspired by Duran. So, you know, he did want to teach me the ways of the street so that I would be protected and taken care of. I think he always knew that I was different. He always knew that I didn't have to go to the left in that area and be in the life. He knew that I had what it took to be better than him and to be better than that and to be better than my neighborhood and what my neighborhood had to offer. So I get a phone call. It's a police officer. And as we're talking, I'm realizing that this is the police officer who arrested me that night and took me to jail. He's being friendly. He's being nice. I'm reminiscing of just how bad him and his cop buddies were that night. But now he's, it sounds like a completely different guy and he's being friendly and he's checking in and he suggests that I write this essay, that I participate in this essay contest. And so I did. And the essay that I wrote was inspired by Duran. It was inspired by his passing. It was inspired by his decisions and our relationship. It was about how fucked up my neighborhood was. It was about change and about choosing to change and choosing to walk a different path, even though we were surrounded by just absolute shit. 
So, you know, one of the things I said in the essay is that my friend's death was a sudden turnaround. I saw how he lived and I saw how things ended up. And I said that I was gonna learn from his mistakes. But what was a complete shock to me is that this essay caught fire. I remember local news stations coming to my school to interview me. Uh, the Washington Post did a cover story on it and they printed it on Independence Day. High schools were bringing me in to read the essay to their student body and answer any questions that they may have had. I even had a float in a local parade. I had my own little car because of this essay. It was, it was insane how much attention and just pomp and circumstance that was around this whole damn thing just because of this little essay. But they all got it wrong, all of them. The Washington Post, the local high schools, they all got it wrong because they villainized Duran. To me, Duran was a protector, and I saw that Duran lived by a code. He had honor, he was loyal. And although he did make some bad decisions, that didn't mean that he was a bad person. I always saw him as a good person, I still do. I always had some apprehension once I saw the direction that, that they were pulling the essay into. I always had some apprehension about it because I knew that they were pegging it wrong and pointing out the worst of him in order to make me a, a turnaround story, a redemption story. But it wasn't accurate because a lot of the ways that I went about my life and the ways that I turned things around, I learned from Duran. I still think about Duran from time to time. I think about everything that he taught me and I think it makes me remember that in life, like shit's not black and white. There's a whole lot of gray. You know, you can pull great things out of bad. And then there's a lot of bad and things that are supposed to be good. That all was there that one night with that car. But I'll always appreciate the way that Duran came back for me. How he risked everything. Everything was on the line. I didn't know that he had an arrest warrant that would have put him away forever. But he knew. And despite that, he came back and he opened up that fucking door to let me out. They just, they don't make them like that anymore. Deron, man, he wasn't scared of nobody. Yeah.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Bobby McFerrin behind me now, and we just heard from Chris Lundy. You can find him on Twitter at Lundy World. Also, uh, John LaSala, like I was saying, did all the music composition and the editing of that story. John has a favorite edit of his own, an alternate edit that we're going to put up on Patreon for anyone who might be curious to compare. It's not so unusual for an editor on the show to have a favorite version and for me to have a different favorite version. And so I figure no reason we can't share the alternate version over there for anyone who is curious to hear the difference. Don't forget that on August 18th, we will be having our next Risk live show at Caveat on the Lower East Side in New York City. The show will be 7 p.m. Eastern. You must show proof of vaccination. It'll also be simultaneously live streamed on YouTube, so be sure to get your tickets for either the live stream or the in-person show at risk-show.com tour. Don't forget... We are putting together a Halloween episode and a Winter Holidays episode. And in New York, at least, we're casting a Halloween evening and a Winter Holidays evening. So pitch us your stories, whether you're in New York or not. And yeah, we're really looking forward to hearing more pitches. You can reach us over at risk-show.com slash submissions and if you know anyone else who might have good stories in those genres in those themes have them pitch us at wristshow.com slash submissions you can also follow us on our socials we're at risk show on facebook twitter and instagram and on twitter and instagram i'm at the kevin allison the risk podcast fans discussion group is on facebook over on Reddit, our subreddit is Risk Podcast. Don't forget that I do one-on-one -on -one storytelling training. I really love working with people one-on-one, -on -one, uh, working on their memoirs or their solo shows or the stories they want to share on The Moth or whatever it might be. That is at kevinallison.com. And if you want to hire me to send a quick little fun video greeting or a sincere pep talk or whatever it might be, that is at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. Folks, today is the day. Take a risk.